Welcome to Behind the Band, a podcast where we're all about helping you grow your music career. We do that by talking with awesome artists and people from the industry. Hey, my name is David Ryan Olson. If we haven't met, I run Evergreen Records. We are a production company that wants to be a little bit more than a production company. We want to help artists like you grow. So that's why we do stuff like this, this podcast, other educational resources. So we'd love for you to check out how we can help you. Just go to evergreenrecords.com. Today, we have RAC on the show. The stage name of a guy named Andre have a really great conversation for you. He's going to share, I don't want to call it an accident, but he kind of built a music career just by doing what he loved. So he'll share that story. It's a really great conversation. And he'll also just kind of talk about some of the ways that he thinks the music industry is going to be changing and some of the ways that he has adapted to that. So real excited to jump in that conversation. Real quick before we do, if you are working on new music would love for you to sign up for our free half hour workshop it's called rock the release it's going to teach you everything you need to know about promoting your music to blogs and playlists so you can start getting more streams so just go to evergreenrecords.com slash workshop sign up for that but for now without further ado let's just go ahead and jump into our conversation with andre of rac well andre dude thanks for joining me today how are you doing it's good to be here thanks for having me i'm doing good chilling up in portland we had snow recently which is like a big deal the city like shuts down <laughs> snowpocalypse is the term but it doesn't really matter because we're not going outside anyway so here we are right <laughs> <laughs> well dude super glad that you've joined us on the show today would love just to kind of jump in and talk about your story why don't you go ahead and just share that yeah so i often run into this issue where like somebody asks me like what i do and i always sort of stumble on it. it's like well i kind of do a lot of things like I think my go-to answer is I'm a musician, and I think that that is accurate and true. But I sort of play with a lot of different things, and I sometimes on the production side, sometimes on the business side, I like to be involved in all kinds of facets. But I've basically never really had like a real job. I've always been like straight out of college. I've been doing this, and this project is called RAC, and it's morphed and changed over time. And I've done all kinds of different things, but. I guess maybe just to go back to the beginning of time, there was an energy ball. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> For context, like I grew up in Portugal, so I was born and raised there. It's a beautiful country, but like pretty limited in terms of like access and, you know, not a whole lot of culturally relevant things happening there, at least at the time, at least not in my eyes. So I was sort of shielded from a lot of important stuff. You know, I grew up kind of in my own little bubble. I was maybe like, I think I want to say like 12 or 13 when I really first seriously picked up the guitar and started to dabble and try to like figure out how to play Nirvana <laughs> and like things like that. Well, it's all power chords, so that's easy. Right. <laughs> but like for a kid to play like power chords, it's a little tricky. So that was sort of my very first introduction. I did take piano lessons as a kid, but I don't know if that really counts. But, you know, I was sort of drawn to music, I think, because... You can probably tell I have an American accent because my mom's American, my dad's Portuguese. So I grew up bilingual and I actually struggled with that a lot when I was a kid and I wasn't really fluent enough in either language. Again, this is all in hindsight, but that's when I discovered music because music to me felt like a different type of language, like a different form of communication that wasn't so you could do it incorrectly, you know, and something pleasant might come out. So I think that's what drew me to music originally was just this confusion about language in general. And I just liked it. There was something about it that was really powerful. And I consumed as much as I could. But like, again, in Portugal, we had like three TV channels. 
you know, there's radio stations. I, I couldn't afford CDs or cassettes or anything. I also grew up in sort of a religious environment, which was sort of frowned upon to like listen to secular music. So I was kind of in this very much like a bubble, but it actually forced me to create a lot of music, which I think was a good thing to start off with. So I started essentially writing my own songs. I mean, if you want to call them songs, I just come up with stuff on the fly. I got used to improvising very early on. It was just like a pleasant thing to get in this weird flow state. So 13 or 14, by then I had like a computer and this is actually kind of a crazy story, but I was eating cereal like for breakfast and in this cereal, there was like a CD with some software, with some very basic recording software for this program called Hip Hop EJ. <laughs> it's about as bad as it sounds. <laughs> It was very basic. It was only limited to 120 BPM. That's weird. Yeah, yeah. It was very oddly specific. I think it was meant more to use the built-in samples, but they had a record function with like, you know, those like bad PC mics that were just like really thin PC mics, you know? Oh, yeah. That's all I had. So I would just record everything with that. Like drums, like I would hit stuff. I would record all my own samples and sort of use the software in a way that wasn't intended. But again, I was limited to 120 BPM. <laughs> the other side of it that was pretty interesting was that it would give you like a click, like as a count off. So it was like one, two, three, four, and then nothing. <laughs> I had to internalize the rhythm of the part. I'm really happy about that because it, it ingrained like almost this like insane sense of rhythm that I still take for granted today. I'm so hardcore about hitting the rhythm right or like getting in the pocket. Like because of that, it forced me to write songs almost in loops. So I would never write like super long loops. So again, this is all in hindsight. I didn't realize what I was doing at the time, but it was sort of leading me down this path of being more fluent in what would eventually become more electronic based music, you know? So even though I was using acoustic sounds or whatever, it was that mentality of you don't sit in a room and write a song. It's like you write songs by little parts. The other thing is like when I was recording, I couldn't play along to what I had recorded before. So it was literally just like silence. So I had to like internalize what I was playing before. And anyway, it was just like a very primitive recording program. Still crazy to me that it came in a cereal box. <laughs> And do you remember what cereal? It was this Portuguese cereal called Shuck a Beak. It's like a Cocoa Puffs like knockoff. It's not even like <laughs> a real thing. I think it's still around actually, but I've tried to look this up. I mean, there's no information about it online. The program itself still exists. <laughs> you know, this is pre internet. I just didn't know what I was doing. This is my first introduction to recording. But like the idea that I could record, that I didn't need a band, that I could just record ideas and layer things on top of each other, that was mind blowing. You know, no time stretching, no nothing, like <laughs> literally very basic stuff. So I think in my first like two or three years, I wrote like nine albums worth of like <laughs> just really bad music. But, you know, it was my learning experience. And how old were you again? So I was maybe like 14, 15. And, you know, all on guitar, I had a little keyboard too, things like that. But like a nylon guitar, so not even like an electric guitar or anything like that. And I think my parents at the time saw that I had a, maybe an aptitude or a real strong interest in it. So they helped me out. They definitely encouraged it. So I think they <laughs> there always comes that moment where they're like, so you want to do this for a job, huh? <laughs> so, yeah, you should. Uh, yeah, you should. I get it. Like, it's a very difficult industry to break into. Like, I understand the concern. I think their reaction to that was like, OK, 
why don't you consider going to college? Because my mom's American, I go into school in the US. I actually went to school in the middle of nowhere in Illinois. <laughs> I went to a music school there. I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but I want to paint this picture of like living in a bubble. Like I discovered the Beatles on Napster. It wasn't because I had access to all this information. I was sort of just like in my own little world, writing my own songs. And I'm so grateful for that period because it really taught me to improvise. Because a lot of people learn music by imitating others. And like, I'm really grateful that I didn't do that. You know, I tried to imitate some Nirvana stuff, but not really, you know. <laughs> so learning on my own was really important. Throughout this whole process, I had a couple like mentors that showed me the ropes of like how to do certain things. And then at a certain point, I upgraded to a pirated copy of uh, Cubase. <laughs> as you do because i wasn't making any money from music so yeah anyway so i got like a basic sound card 16 or 17 i was already writing more fully fledged songs i already had a better understanding of like compression and like the more technical stuff of, of music creation but again it was a lot of trial and error I, I played in bands as well like in this whole period i'm a guitar player so i even played in metal bands and like local bands <laughs> all kinds of fun stuff played shows got to experience that and throughout that process i realized that i don't like working with other people and <laughs> 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 i'll give that more context but basically like I, I realized that i really wanted to have my own project like i really wanted to sort of have something that i called my own I didn't want to be in a band where suddenly the drummer's giving me notes on my guitar parts, you know, like that kind of thing. Or like, I want to write the drum parts or I want to write that type of stuff. So not to say that I can't collaborate, but I needed that to have that outlet for myself. And that's what recording gave me to some extent. So I think I was maybe 17 or 18. I'm not a vocalist. So all this stuff that I've been doing is like more instrumental. And I decided to try my hand at like remixing, remixing competitions, essentially. And there was a couple of websites at the time. There was one called Acid Planet, which is really funny. <laughs> it was actually run by Sony. And I realized that I was actually kind of good at it. I mean, I cringe at those early remixes, but like I was naturally sort of talented at doing that kind of thing. So I entered a bunch of different competitions. I ended up winning a bunch, which was kind of crazy. And I even got runners up on a Chemical Brothers <laughs> remix competition. So that was pretty cool. And I was like, okay, well, maybe, maybe there's something to this. And I mean, this is all pre-RAC, so I'm really just like testing the waters. And I think I was maybe 19 or 20. I heard about this little band called Block Party, and I just reached out to them. I was like, hey, uh, I have all these bootleg remixes, but I didn't mention that. I was like, I have all these remixes. Uh, I'd love to have a shot at remixing a song off of your first EP. You know, this is before their first album or anything like that. So I think they were like, okay, cool, whatever, try it out, you know. And they ended up really liking it. And it was like my first official remix for Block Party. That was a very big deal for me at the time, especially because that was sort of the height of, after that first album, that was the height of their career. And they became like a very important band at that time. In the meantime, I had that conversation with my parents and they're like, so you want to do music? And, and I agreed with them. It's like, you know, I should probably get a degree. I have an opportunity to, I could get a scholarship. And so I decided to go to school in Illinois, move there. It's this place called Greenville College and literally like 3,000 students or something like that. So very small. 
I really enjoyed the people. I didn't enjoy the classes at all. I even took recording classes and realized that I was actually, I hope I don't come across the wrong way, but I was already far beyond what they were teaching because I already had a lot of experience. I was even technically working professionally by the time I even got there. So I was a little bit bored with it. But they had these amazing studios and, you know, like Moogs and like Neumann mics and like just like mixing boards, like things I didn't have access to before because I was primarily like, uh, you know, laptop producer at the time. But I, I met a lot of really talented artists and musicians there. And I was actually applying to internships like all over the place. I was like emailing like everybody I could think of and I was getting nothing. For what? So like literally anything, like any kind of music industry job, like wrapping cables, like fetching coffee, like I'll do anything. And I was just getting no replies. And I was like, okay, I need to do something in music. I have no other option. I have to start something of my own. The remixing stuff had been going well. So, okay, maybe this is an interesting avenue. Because I, I had heard that people got paid for remixes. So I was like, okay, well, like, let me try this. And my whole I original idea was to start a company, which is kind of funny in hindsight, but <laughs> start a company called the Remix Artist Collective that I'm going to get all my friends that I made from these remixing competitions, like, hey, let's start a company and let's try to get hired by these labels and these artists, you know, do remixes for them. You know, we're, we're winning all these competitions. Clearly, we have something here. Maybe let's try to get paid. And, you know, I'm like, in my mind, I was like, man, if I get paid like 200 bucks, that'd be sick. <laughs> yeah. Really funny in hindsight. But, you know, that was the original idea. It's like, let me start a business around this idea and see what happens. And I reached out to like hundreds of artists. But the first person that got back to me was actually The Shins. And that was crazy to me. So it was actually kind of a funny story because they had their phone number <laughs> on their page. Like, nobody does this anymore. Well, their manager's phone number, this guy, Ian Montone, which is actually like pretty well-known manager now. He had his phone number on the webpage, so I just called him up. I figured I have nothing to lose. Like, if this goes poorly, he's not going to remember me. So I was like, hey, I'm a remixer and I'd really love an opportunity to remix The Shins. I know they have a new album coming out because I saw the announcement. I was like, I would love to do something for them. And he's like, oh, um, okay. I, I got the impression that nobody had ever asked them <laughs> because it was like an indie rock band, you know? And it was much more of an electronic thing before. So he was like, oh, okay, I mean, I'll run it by the band, sure. Yeah, uh, all right, I'll talk to you later. I was like in class a couple weeks later and I got a call from this New York number, I think. I like skipped class. And it was kind of a big deal because it's like a small, very small class. You're not supposed to, you know. I was like, I'm so sorry. I have to leave. <laughs> I was like some math class. And he was like, yeah, the band's really into the idea. We'll mail you a CD with the stems, you know. <laughs> I was like, we need your address. And I'm like, P.O. Box, you know, like the, the student P.O. Box in college. <laughs> and I got the CD with all the stems. I ended up spending like two weeks on it. I really put a lot of effort into it. I was so nervous, like sending it in. But I got such a nice message from James and the whole crew, and they loved it. They were, like, super supportive, and I think they really saw what I was trying to do because I was trying to specifically not do, like, dance remixes. Like, I wanted to do something that was acoustic and appropriate for the song that they wrote, you know? Well, because this was kind of in an era where remixes were, like, trying to make it big and dancey and housey, right? Yeah, exactly. The remix was the club mix, you know? And I was just like, I have never been to a club in my life. Like, I don't I don't, I don't care about that. Like, you know, I, I wanted to make music. I wanted to do basically like an alternate arrangement, probably for people like me that sit in front of their computer and work on stuff. You know, like that, that was, I was making music for myself to some extent, but also doing something that's appropriate for the song. So 
They really liked it. It got suddenly it's on Pitchfork. Suddenly I'm getting hit up by everybody. It's getting picked up by blogs. I'm like, what is happening? This is crazy. This little project that was kind of a just like a offshoot, like this side project that, that I didn't really put that much thought into suddenly became the most successful thing I'd ever done. And meanwhile, all these bands that I've been in throughout the years and, you know, as much as I loved them were sort of dead ends, you know, they weren't really going anywhere. So like I kind of leaned into the remix stuff. I actually had this moment that really kind of changed my life where the Shins were coming through St. Louis, which is the nearest city, like an hour away. And I asked Ian, the manager I was like, hey, do you mind if I get added to the list or do you mind if I go to the show? I'd, I'd love to just say hi to the band or whatever. He's like, oh yeah, of course. And I remember he, he was like, we'll give you a plus one. And I had to ask him what a plus one was because I didn't <laughs> like I didn't know what it was. I was like that green. So he was like, haha, very funny. And I'm like, no, but seriously, what what do you what is that? <laughs> and he's like, oh wait, you really don't know. So anyway, I met the band and James was like such a the singer, he was like such a nice guy. And he recognized that I was young and like ambitious and he wanted to encourage that I think in hindsight but he told me that he liked my version better than theirs so like to me like uh, you know as a newcomer that's like that's amazing like that's amazing encouragement right it sort of made all that effort and all that work you know really really worth it so you know from there on it came out through sub pop records like legendary label the world opened up like I got a really lucky break early on and not not to say that everything has been smooth sailing, but it hasn't really stopped since then. So it's it's been from that first moment, that's my origin story, I guess. And then suddenly I'm working with other sub-pop artists, and then suddenly everybody that likes sub-pop is hitting me up. I just was sort of able to build that over time, you know, to sort of work with different artists and be like, hey, I work with the Shins. You like the Shins. Let me work with you guys, you know, and sort of just over time developed it in, into what it is today. I feel like I just dumped a lot of information on you, but like that's kind of the beginning of like my first like real introduction into like the music industry, I guess. Yeah, that is a fantastic story. There is so much to unpack in there. I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, I, I can certainly keep going because like it's definitely evolved over time. And I, I'm not I'm not going to dwell on every single little detail like that. But like, I think that that context is important for like what comes later, because I guess just to get into it and obviously cut me off if you have a question, but but like, <laughs> basically, like I'm starting to expand on all the remixes. I'm doing all these work with different brands uh, or bands. Uh, <laughs> and I realized that there's real power in that like cross-pollination of working with different artists because I'm like tapping into their fan base, you know, to their core fan base, the people that really care about it. Because who listens to like a remix from like their band? It's like their core audience for the most part. I mean, maybe now it's a little more nebulous. You hear it on a playlist or something, but for the most part, it's like, at the time, it was like these core people. I'm like tapping into the Shins hardcore fan base and then tapping into like all these other bands. Suddenly there's like this pattern emerging of people that's like, oh, well, I like RAC because he did all these remixes for all these other bands. And like, suddenly they're becoming my fans as well. And that was really powerful. And I don't think that had really been done before, like using remixes as like, like a sole platform, you know, to create a career. Again, purely by luck, but it just kind of worked out that way. And from there, you know, a couple of years into it, then I started to 
get offers to play shows and and started to tour as a DJ. And then suddenly I'm doing more electronic stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, now I'm back to like kind of remixes and club club remixes. And I'm, I'm but I'm still kind of doing it in my own way. This sort of like doing indie indie dance that became kind of a genre at the time. And uh, I, I'm just sort of like trying to further what remixes can be, you know. In the midst of all this, the other thing I should mention is like the blog world was in its infancy. So I recognized that there was there was sort of this emergent group of music bloggers that were just fans of music. And I just started to hit them up personally. I'm like, hey, I'm a remixer, you know, check out my stuff. I, I you know, I, I've worked with so and so and so, you know, just networking basically, kind of promoting myself. And it was just so early that all those kind of OG bloggers were very approachable and like literally nobody in the music industry cared about them. So suddenly here's like this little tiny artist like reaching out to them and they're like, oh, cool. He likes us. And they started to promote my stuff. And I kind of grew with that movement as well. You know, over the years that became kind of this sort of hype cycle where they became the tastemakers in many ways for the music industry for for a while. And I was right there in the center of it. So I sort of benefited from just being early in that space as well. And then Hype Machine, which was like an aggregator of all these blogs. I was like, by the time Hype Machine came out, I was already so deep in that world that uh, it was just like if I uploaded any song, it would just get picked up by all of them and then sort of perpetuate it. So it was it was like a lot of that of just sort of trying to be early on on certain movements and sort of ride that wave, I guess. And uh, the mix of like the early, inter- I mean, this is pre-SoundCloud, like all, all this stuff. So this is like, this is the MySpace era, which is like so funny to think about. <laughs> and I feel like I'm kind of jumping around all over the place, but it, it was just like a lot of uh, sort of building on different things and tapping into different groups of people as things pop off. And... I was essentially able to just build more notoriety for like for the project and for the RAC name. I guess I eventually got into original music, but like I, I didn't want to. That's a whole other thing. OK, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it almost sounds like you weren't necessarily sitting with your you're like whiteboard trying to do like a big old like SWOT analysis of like, well, I think the industry is going to have a lot of, you know, uh, remix potential coming up in the next couple of years because we're seeing these new things called blogs. You were just kind of like doing your thing, figuring out as you go. And the fact that it kind of worked out for you is part of why it worked out for you. You were kind of just doing it for fun and right place, right time. I was doing it for myself to some extent because like I, I was the primary user, right? Like I, I was like I wanted to discover music, so I went to blogs. So then I discovered this movement. So I was like, those are the people like I kind of wanted to insert myself into their world because it's like, oh, suddenly I'm I'm finding out about all these cool bands from these blogs. And th- there's the other side of it is that like since I was relatively small at the time, I was using it as a resource to discover new bands so I could get in early with them too, you know? So it was like, oh, because it worked for me with Block Party. So I, I discovered Block Party early by accident. So I was like, okay, I need to get involved with artist careers early, which ended up being like Foster the People and Lana Del Rey, like people like that, that I, I got in early, that I got to ride that wave with them, you know, sort of tangent on their side, not not like 
obviously they became like massive, but you know, th there was a lot of examples of like that. It paid off to be early and, and to get involved when a scene is just starting, you know? So again, but it wasn't calculated. Yeah. It wasn't like a whiteboard, like, like, Oh, over here, if I do this, uh, our, our growth will, you know, you know, it'll, it'll go up exponentially. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like that. Yeah. Well, but even just the concept of doing a remix or a rearrangement of like an indie rock thing, it's like, that wasn't necessarily like a calculated thing. That was more just like, I think this is cool. And the market kind of evolved around that. That's what I wanted to hear. Like when I heard, re okay, so to give credit to another remixer, there's this Japanese artist named Cornelius. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, but absolutely amazing artist. He put out these albums, I think in like 2003, 2004 of, he would do these acoustic remixes of these very popular songs. And it just blew my mind. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. This is, uh, this is amazing. Like he would do like sting, like sting songs and, and, and do like, I mean, sting is acoustic, but like he would do like Moby songs with acoustic guitars. And to me, it was just mind blowing how you could really change the entire feel and tell like a different story with the same song while still being respectful to the original one. So like that to me was, was the ultimate kind of nod to the original. So yeah, when I was like going, getting into remixes, like that's what kind of drew me to it. Because th that's what I liked about remixes was that sort of different take on it, you know? Like if you change the chords or if you change the arrangement, you can change the feel of a song. You can give weight to a different lyric that, that maybe was sort of lost. But if you give it a different chord structure, it can have far more impact or a different type of impact. So that's what I got excited about, you know, with remixes. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like there's something authentic that happens when you're not trying to co-opt someone else's movement, but you're just doing your thing. So often it seems like some artists are trying to, you know, say, oh, well, you know, rock isn't cool anymore. So I'm not going to do guitar music anymore. When like the reality is you'd probably have a lot more success just being yourself. And so you being yourself is probably a huge part of why you gain traction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, th that's actually... That's actually my go-to answer. Like when people ask me, what's your best advice for a new producer? You know, like the classic question, but it, it, it's, my answer is always like, be yourself. It's harder. It'll take longer, but you'll, I think that that's actually the secret to longevity in the music industry. Cause if you try to like ride trends, you're already late. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that I think people have uh, a really good sense of, of authenticity and people can see through it and they can tell when you're being real and when you're not. So trying to create something that's your own and just owning that and like basically creating music for yourself, which is sort of the like for me, that's sort of like it's all my interests combined. You know, like if you listen to my music, those are just all my interests. Like that's the kind of music that I want to hear. I'm basically making music for myself, which I, I, I know like some people don't like that idea, but that's how it works. It's like you make music for yourself and it's honest and real. And then you kind of hope and assume that other people will also resonate with it because they probably have similar interests, you know? If you do that over a long enough period, I think you'll have a long career, you know? Right. And just because, you know, some of your closest family and friends don't necessarily connect with the same way that you've assembled all of your interests and all of your influences doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't people out there that won't. This is going to be the quote I bring up every single episode from here on out. But earlier on this show, we had a guest named Daniel Radin, 
say a quote that going to keep repeating until I'm blue in the face. <laughs> you have fans out there that have never heard your music. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Absolutely. It's so true. And like, what a great time to be a creator where you can actually reach those people or you have a, at least a better chance of reaching those people. It's not a given. It's never guaranteed, but you have a pretty good chance. If people really genuinely love what you do, you you will be kind of rewarded for it. So no, that's a good quote. I would keep repeating it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to give Daniel royalties for that. Daniel, if you're listening, you know where to find me. I have your Magic Man CD signed. <laughs> Moving on to just kind of some of your present, though. What does your your routine, your groove, what does that kind of look like for you these days? I mean, obviously things are a little bit disrupted by the thing that will remain nameless. <laughs> but, um, the thing that literally every podcast episode ever has to mention these days. What is kind of your, for lack of a better term, your normal cycle of, you know, days, weeks, months, years look like for you? Yeah, it, it kind of depends on, I think about this stuff in terms of album cycles. So it, it, it fluctuates, but generally I put out like uh, an album of original work. My, my, my cadence is about three years now. So like every three years I put out like an album of original work. And that has been uh, the, the main focus of my career for the past, I don't know, since 2013. So uh, remixes are still a part of it. And that was definitely my introduction. But I definitely focus more on the original work these days. I, like I've done like, I don't know, like probably close to 300 remixes at this point. So I'm kind of like not over it, but I like it really, t it, I really need something to challenge me to, for me to be interested in it. Cause like, otherwise I'm just going through the motions, you know, it's like sort of second nature at this point. So like I, my life is sort of structured in that. And, and that, that goes to with touring as well. Like, you know, if after an album, you generally tour for a while and you get sick of it and you stay at home for a while and then the, the things start rolling again, you start to write music and then you put an album out and then, you know, it kind of, then you tour again. It, it sort of, it ends up being cyclical that way. Obviously, you know, the, the thing that shall not be named kind of threw a wrench in that a little bit, but I, I've actually, it's, it's, it's been, I've been gravitating towards different things anyway. So I guess maybe more recently in 2019, really that was where most of the work was done i spent most of that year working on on my third lp which was called boy and you know <laughs> i i the, the way that i write albums is i i will write i will wake up every day and write a, like a song or a demo like instrumental demo and and i'll just catalog it i'll just like it'll be like a number i don't even name it like a random title or anything a word or anything like that i just come up with a number and I'll just keep doing that just over and over again. And some of it's bad, some of it's great, some of it's mediocre, you know. But the idea is just to like get in that habit of just basically getting a song out every day or getting out a demo, like a rough demo, sometimes two days. Like I'm not like that strict about it. And then once I get maybe 60 or 70 from there, I'll start to think about different vocalists and different artists that I like to collaborate with and start to, you know, then I get a little more in, onto the business side, which is like, you know, help, I have help from my team, from my management team. And like, they'll start to assemble, you know, a list of artists that they think would be good. I mean, obviously I do my own, I, I reach out to my friends and like things like that. And I'll start to basically create little playlists of different songs that I think might work for them. You know, so uh, shout out to Disco. I don't know if anybody uses Disco, but it's like this amazing like audio hosting service. It has a, it's really easy to create little playlists of like different, so like three or four songs, you know, that's like, okay, well, I'm going to send them three or four options and they get a link 
and then I can see what they're listening to <laughs> <laughs> and then see, oh, well, they're listening to this demo a little bit more. Okay, I'll reserve that for them so I won't send it to this other person, you know. So I'll start to kind of map it out of like what this might look like. And, you know, I'll go pretty broad. Like, I'll, I'll work, like, I have no reservations about working with all kinds of different people and, you know, just try to assemble like a list of cool, interesting people that I think would, you know, sound good on that particular song, you know. And from there, I'll uh, I'll basically just start, you know, if, if somebody like really reacts to a song, then we'll start working on it, you know, mostly over email at first, sometimes in the same room, it kind of depends on the time of year or where, where I'm at or whatever. And we'll just kind of start sketching something out. And I'll try, I'll shoot for maybe 30 or 40 songs out of that 70 to have vocals on it. So from there, you know, like that, that's another thing that I've learned over the years is like not everything you write is good. And that's okay. Like it's a numbers game. So like I, I'm trying to write the best album I can or the most cohesive album I can. So I'm going to try to write as much as possible so then I can sort of fine tune it. And, you know, get it down from those 30 or 40 songs, I'll cut, you know, 30 or, or, or 25. So to get it more closer to something that makes sense as like a listening experience. So, you know, all of these different periods that I'm discussing have like different rhythms in the day, but they are kind of distinct periods for me. So and, and it's kind of fun to because you get you got, kind of get sick of something for a while. Like if you get up and every day write a song, like sometimes they can get old where you get you go through the same motions, the same type of melodies. You're like, oh, I'm tired of this. So then then when you start to you get sick of the stuff and then you put it away for a while, then you start working with vocalists and you get excited about it again. It's like, oh, this is sick. This is cool. And you get to travel more. You get to see people like have conversations, talk about life, you know, and like then you sort of feel re-energized and then. You get tired of that too. And then you go into this other mode is after all of that of like really finishing the songs and spending a lot of time fine tuning everything. And that's its own process, which is actually a lot more time consuming than the actual original writing period, because the original writing period is just so quick, just like ideas, ideas, ideas. But the fine tuning process is a lot more meticulous, like detail work, that type of thing. From there, you know, I'm just kind of somehow trying to piece together an album out of you know 30 or 40 demos ideas and and then from there you know after after you get all that then you start to think about artwork and conceptualizing the past couple years of your life and like (laughs) trying to you know come to terms with like what it all means and 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 all that so that's kind of like the rough cadence of all this I didn't even talk about really releasing it, but then you go through the whole business side of releasing music, like working with a label, marketing plans, artwork, uh, photo shoots, all of that side of things. And, you know, then the actual release. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of a lot now that I think about it. It is a lot, but it also sounds like you're very prolific in terms of how many songs you write. The fact that you're doing, you have a bunch of ideas and then there's like 70 songs and then they're chopped down to like 30 and then I forgot how many songs you tend to have on an album. But, you know, most people, it's somewhere in between, you know, 10, 15, 20, if you're the 1975 or whatever, but, you know. Okay, like the remixing gave me this amazing outlet where I get to try all kinds of different genres, right? And that actually allowed me to not get sick of it because I was... I was doing like a Bob Marley remix and then doing a New Order remix. It was like, they're like completely different, right? So I was actually getting to try all kinds of different stuff. And that was like so fun. 
And I kind of need that to reset. You know, you need to have variety. Like the the last thing that I want is, is to get boxed into a corner when people are like, you make disco. So you are a <laughs> disco artist. And I'm like, I would die. Like uh, nothing against disco. I mean, it's, it's a really fun genre to play with, but like it, it's so just kind of like one-sided people love to do that to artists they love to be like you are this this is what you are don't deviate otherwise we will hate you you know so i i really made it a point to just change just do different things and try different things because i think it's really fun like more recently in the past couple of years i did this um, project for the the oregon ballet theater it was a small project but it was it was really fun trying to score something for like a ballet like it was like totally different type of writing you know there's no verse there's no chorus it's just just writing music that makes sense that flows in an interesting way you know and like that was a nice reset for me you know it was like so different and yeah just trying a different genre like piano based music you know that wasn't very much out of my comfort zone but again the challenge was like fun so then by the time I, I it was time to do an album i was like re-energized i was like okay well now i have this under my belt too i didn't even mention it but i've done like film score and i used to work on tv shows like so like anything that keeps it interesting and just challenging really like I, I think maybe that's the that's the key is like keep pushing yourself to do something different you know and maybe fail but like try <laughs> well yeah having different seasons of what you're doing or what you're experimenting with i think is a great way to avoid burnout and you know stay prolific what about more on like the day-to-day -day level do you have like hobbies outside of music or are you just someone who's you know every waking hour you've got your head sandwiched up against your screen sort of a thing so photography is a hobby of mine more when i'm traveling to be fair because if I, you know I'm, if i'm traveling to all these cool places i might as well bring a camera which i really like doing it's a fantastic excuse to get out of the hotel room you know especially it's actually one of my favorite things to do is to just go walk around a city with like nobody and just like just explore and it's a great way to see a city for example like in, in japan you know everybody kind of takes the subway around because it's like more efficient but like it's actually more fun to just walk around and see the little lady putting up her you know her laundry or like and like not, not even to capture that moment but just to sort of experience it and like there's there's a lot of that that i appreciate from it forces me to slow down a bit and it's it's nice to to just kind of wander and see things happen, I guess. So, so like on on a more day to day basis, again, it's kind of cyclical. But I am quite involved in the business side of things. Like I'm, I, I, have, a, I have a really good relationship with my manager. But um, like I think a lot of managers would be annoyed at the level of involvement like that that I have because I'm. Like, I, I just, I like to be on top of everything, you know. I am business-minded and I, I like to, I like to talk about everything and figure out, you know, negotiations and like how to play certain things. And I think it's important for the artist to be aware of that. Otherwise, you know, you could be taken advantage of. And it's it's just important to know how the music industry works. So I, I've always been re really interested in that side of things. And, you know, I've made mistakes along the way, but I, you know, learned from them and, and I can sort of speak on their level, you know. So that, that's that does take up like probably like the first half of my day, <laughs> like just emails and and calls and things like that. The music stuff is, is, is there will be sometimes periods of time where I don't even work on any music. But again, I think it's important to take those breaks from time to time just to 
yeah, just to kind of reset, I think, like, because like when you come back to it, you like, I always have this moment where like, oh, right, this is what I do. <laughs> like, this is fun. This is what I like. Like, this is why I mean, this is why I do all this other stuff, you know, like getting into that, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier, but like a flow state of just creating something is, is the most kind of peaceful. I think it's a form of meditation, actually. People talk about like the health benefits of it. I think writing music is a form of that. So, like, I love that state. I love doing that. But every once in a while, I kind of forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess, like, my, my day isn't, like, super structured like that. It's more, like, kind of depending on the project. Like, right now, I've been doing a lot of, we can get into it more deeply later, but, like, the, the NFT stuff, like, of creating sort of scarce digital art. So, I've been playing a lot with that, of creating, like, really small bits of music and collaborations with, like, visual artists and selling them as fine art, which has been pretty interesting. Also, again, just another really interesting creative challenge. Like, how do you make an impact in 30 seconds? You know, most people wouldn't even get to the first verse in 30 seconds. So, like, it's it's kind of, um, yeah, it's just another type of challenge, you know. So, that's been kind of a focus lately. And it's having a bit of, mom- of a moment in the music industry as well. So, I'm getting hit up a lot about that. <laughs> a lot of other artists are like, what is this? What are you doing? So that's been taking up a lot of my time recently. I also run a label with with a couple friends and I'm now fully independent. So basically signed to my own label, technically. So running that aspect of it. But again, I, I enjoy that. Like it's a nice thing. I will say, like the 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 thing that shall not be named has it's funny because I, I kind of lived this lifestyle before. Like I was in front of a computer a lot, you know, uh, I stayed home a lot except when I was traveling, but, you know, I would, I, I would just work a lot because I like what I do. It's not, it doesn't feel like work, you know, you're just, I mean, it gets exhausting, but I do enjoy it. So it's part of my kind of daily routine, I guess, just to, from like, I don't know, the, the 10 a.m. to the, you know, midnight kind of vibe. Wouldn't recommend that for everybody, but um, if you enjoy what you do, it doesn't really feel like work. You're just kind of doing stuff because you like it, you know? Right. Well, and for as much as all of us would love to focus on just the music stuff and not, you know, half the business stuff, what would you say for an artist that's just trying to establish themselves, music being a career and not just a, you know, after work thing, what would you say is some of the most important business side of things to focus on ownership <laughs> make sure you own as much as possible because that's where the real value is i even made this mistake with remixes because uh, what i realized was people are especially when things are hot they're eager to give you money up front in exchange for ownership that was something that i hit a wall with a lot with remixes because nobody wants to give you publishing on it because they're like well it's our song it's like well that's fair but i'm actually redoing everything so like i think it's fair to ask for a portion of it I traded my ownership in songs. I basically traded my work for for an upfront payment for a lot of my career. And now I have no stake in the success of that stuff forever, you know. So I, I think like owning it, owning all your work, like hang on to that as much as you can. But also on the other side, like if there's a, an interesting opportunity that, that you're willing and knowing going into it willing to give that up that's okay too but as long as you know it like don't don't, like a a lot of people like will get their first like big remix offer for like you know 10k or something like that they'll be like this is amazing this is so cool and then realize that the label is probably making 30 or 40 off of it (laughs) you know that's just a, a small example but 
getting ownership is, is pretty important. There's a reason they're giving you money up front. It's because they think they can make more on the back end. It's not out of the goodness of their heart. And I will say, like, more, more business stuff. I mean, uh, the music industry is uh, hostile at its best, and they're sharks. So, like, they might be... The thing is, the thing about the music industry is like people are actually really nice, and it's not—it's not even the people themselves that are like pure evil. It's sort of the system itself is set up to take advantage of you. So it's—it's kind of like—and they're maybe guilty of perpetuating it to some degree. I don't think people really realize the level of like kind of hostility that that's a part of it like the music industry is unique in that like the it's it's one of the most kind of hostile industries in in the world really so yeah like i'd say ownership is is pretty important like i i guess if there's anything more specific like i think like leverage as much you know social media as you like use that to your advantage maybe this stuff is obvious like like you know definitely build an audience as as much as you can try to own that audience and try to engage with them on a more personal level. I think I, I sort of struggle with this question sometimes because it's like basically anything I say now could be completely irrelevant tomorrow. You know what I mean? But I think just the sort of like bigger ideas of like ownership, what I mentioned earlier about like being yourself creatively, I think is super important. And then your audience will kind of find you. And then the same goes for like management and, you know, booking agents and like all of that other stuff like that sort of falls into place when you have the other stuff already there. You know, I was self-managed for the first three years of my career, like working with the biggest artists in the world. I was still self-managed. So it's sort of like hang on to that as long as you can until you like really need help and like try to learn the ropes of the business, because like I think that that is pretty valuable and will help you down the line. Because, yeah, inevitably, somebody's going to try to screw you over. <laughs> it's it's sort of part of being in the music industry, I guess. Right. The music industry is bad for your health, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be fair, it is getting better, but it's systematically a problem. It's getting better because I think we're starting to see a little bit of a balance of power away from the gatekeepers and the fact that anybody can pay 40 bucks for DistroKid and upload a song every day if they want it. And it's on Spotify. And, you know, if you want to, you could make an entire album with your laptop and Logic, even as a band or whatever. Which is incredible, right? Like, even in my lifetime, that happens. Like, you know, uh, it's it's funny when I talk to non-music industry people because they still think of this idea of going into the studio and, like, spending $1,000 a day in this, like, professional studio in Hollywood or something. And it's like, that's kind of silly. Like, why would you, <laughs> like, like, literally set up any bedroom whatever i mean maybe for vocal mics whatever there's there's obviously benefits to studios that's not what i'm saying but like you know you don't need that like uh, amazing music has been made on a laptop for sure it's not the thousand dollar a day room it's finding people to collaborate with that can help you make the music you want to make yeah absolutely so one of the things that you've leaned into during this past thing (laughs) is you've been live streaming some of your creative process just kind of jamming can you share how that came to be yeah so this camera setup is actually from my live stream i just have it permanently set up on my desk which is kind of (laughs) nice yeah so so i had finished my third lp and we were looking at ways to promote it and i I feel fortunate because i i was already kind of leaning towards a more digital heavy type of promotion yeah, just any, anything that's more online, basically, because, okay, like touring is where a lot of people make their money. 
but it's actually, in my view, it's, it's, it's a great experience, but it's a very inefficient way of promoting your work. Because it's usually, the music industry loves to talk about touring as like, well, you got to tour the album, you know? And that idea to me is so antiquated. It doesn't make any sense because, you know, you're reaching at best 1,500, depending on your size, whatever. Like, you're only reaching like, you know, a thousand people a night in a different city. And okay, you're making a big impact on those people, but like you could be reaching far bigger numbers just by using digital services. So, so we going into this album, we were like, okay, we really need to lean more into that kind of thing. So we were already looking at it. And when, when I say we, I mean like me and my team, like we talk about this stuff on a daily. So, you know, we, we were talking about ways to promote the album. And then, you know, in January, you start to hear rumblings of this thing that shall not be names. And uh, we're like, uh oh. We have a tour in, in June or July or whatever, 2020. So we're like, oh, I hope that, you know, everything's good. Yeah, so we're like kind of already prepared for it to some degree. And, you know, it basically we actually announced a tour on March 11th, the day the NBA got canceled. So <laughs> markets are crashing. It was literally like the, like the craziest day. And uh, that's the day we announced the tour. <laughs> <laughs> even on the day that I announced the tour, like I even in post is like, look, I recognize that everything's changing right now. We've been playing this tour for six months. I don't know what's happening, but he here's the door. So, you know, we actually sold a lot of tickets despite all of that. But in, in th that was the day where I realized, okay, I, I even like talked to my manager about it. It's like, everything changed today. We need to, we actually shooting a music video that day. It was like, tomorrow we're going to rethink everything. We need to start over. We need to rethink the entire model the old music industry just died today and we need to change. So we basically, you know, once I got home, just started, yeah, just really going, going deep into like how to make this work in, in a non-touring environment. I was already kind of on my way out from touring. I had spent so many years touring, so I was already kind of over it and I, I didn't want to rely on it that much. So I was already kind of halfway out the door, I guess. So it was just a matter of like really leaning into the more digital stuff. So from there, we sort of identified a couple different methods, one of them being live streaming on Twitch. It's funny because at first we were actually live streaming most uh, like multi-streaming. So doing like YouTube, Periscope, everything. I had much more an audience on YouTube, so it just made sense to do it there. But Twitch is really where the cooler stuff was happening. And I, I just didn't want to build like a start over from scratch on Twitch. But anyway, so so, so I started to, to do that. And my whole idea was like, I'll, I'll just stream three times a week. I mean, I'm stuck at home. Like, let me let me do something. I don't know what it is, but I'm I'm just gonna stream something. And I the, the, just before I get more into streaming, uh, the other thing we do is Patreon, basically a subscription service for my most loyal fans. And that was like a pretty big deal as well. So with live streaming, I realized that the power of live streaming isn't the performance. It's not getting up there and playing your 45 minute set every day. You know. What, what I realized, because, okay, you get maybe two or three of those, right? You know, like, there's only so many times you can play the same songs. Like, it, it gets kind of old. So, not, not just for yourself, but for, like, everybody watching. Why would people come back to that, you know? So, I'd actually been watching streams by, like, you know, uh, Shroud and, like, other gamer-type streams. And I thought, like, granted, they are good at what they do, like, playing games. But it's more like the, the interaction with the chat, like, hanging out and talking to people and and then i realized like oh that's actually where, where the power of this lies it's it's the hanging out it's the social interaction it's like 
if I had the chance to like ask Tom York a question <laughs> on stream and he answered it, that would be like something I remembered for my entire life, you know, and Tom York would forget about it in 10 minutes, you know? So like, I'm not putting myself on the same level as Tom York. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that is sort of what we're talking about here. Maybe there are people that, that my work is that important to them. I don't know. But like, you know, it, it's it's not as many, obviously. <laughs> but but there are some people that do like my work. So like, why not do something for them? And just all I have to do is hang out. Like, that's easy. So w what I decided to do is create this system of improvisation. So I've been working in Ableton forever. Like it's second nature to me. I've been building these generative live systems for a long time where it's sort of, it's hard to explain, but basically I'm, I'm able to, by just moving faders, create arrangements on the fly. So it's kind of like loop based mixing. So think about it if you're, it's like DJing with 16 mixers. <laughs> like if you want to think about it that way and there's like effects and things like, so, so you can have, the song running on rails, like the vocal part running on rails in the background, and then play with the arrangement on the fly. Like, okay, for this chorus, I'm going to pull out everything, and then people just sing along, you know, stuff like that that I can do on the fly. So I, I'd already developed a system for a couple of years that I'd been touring with, and I was like, okay, let me adapt this for live streaming. Let me create a system for live streaming. And I simplified. I basically took, like, all these, like, 300 remixes or whatever, pulled out stems from each one of them, you know, the different parts of the songs and organized them, kind of threw them all into Ableton. And now I'm able to sort of mix and match different songs and try different weird random combinations of different remixes, sort of creating these meta remixes of different songs. And and I get to do this like on the fly without really thinking about it. It's literally just imp improv. So, and I have like filters so I can, I can very quickly, like if somebody asks a question, I can just like, filter it down and then like lean into the mic and talk to them, you know, like, <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a, it's a really fun thing to do. And it's very informal. People ask me the weirdest stuff, sometimes technical, sometimes like about life, sometimes about career. And it's just fun. Like it, it feels like hanging out, you know, and I do it for a couple of hours, like my cats show up and like bring them on stream. They do a little dance or something, you know, like, it's, it's become a thing. I have like multiple cameras set up and I've like a cat cam button, you know, like it, <laughs> it, it, it's, there's all these inside jokes with the community. And in, in the midst of all this, I, I think I, I had like this very kind of distant relationship with my audience, you know, and, you know, I, ha I have like maybe two and a half million monthly listeners on Spotify and like, you know, I don't really interact with them. They're just kind of there passive, passively listening. And I, I Maybe they follow me on social media, and but they probably don't care that much, you know. But like this is like a more meaningful kind of one, not one to one, but you know, it's like it's just more, it's just closer, I guess. And I think in the midst of, co sorry, I almost said it, dude. I was gonna almost have to bleep you. And <laughs> in, in in the midst of the thing that shall not be named, I think people were kind of like yearning for that, and like really kind of wanted some some of that. Like, I mean, I, I get it that it's through a screen, but like some kind of closer hangout type of experience when everybody was stuck at home. So it, it was just right place, right time again, once again, and and just kind of took off. And Twitch supported me heavily. And, you know, they were really showing like, you, you know, like I, I saw a lot of artists and friends of mine like get up on Twitch and do like a DJ set and perform. And I think they kind of miss the chat side of it where it's like, no, the, the fun part is like hanging out with people. 
Like the music is secondary almost like that's not, it's important and people enjoy it when you play a song or two or when you bust out like a demo from like an old song that they haven't heard before. Like that's fun. But when it's spontaneous or like I'll, I'll I do these covers of, I have this like um, MIDI instrument of my cats where I sampled my cats meowing <laughs> and then I can send any MIDI file I want through it. You know, like cat star Wars, like it's just kind of a dumb joke, but <laughs> I don't take myself seriously, so like I just like having anything for a laugh, you know. Again, a lot of cat-themed content here, but there's this inside joke with lint rollers because because any cat owner knows you sort of have to have like an unlimited supply of lint rollers everywhere because your cat fur gets everywhere. So now there's uh, like there's like these emotes in Twitch, like this is like a lint roller, and we we have like a like a golden lint roller. emote and that's like sort of the symbol of our community and and like when we raid other channels people like it's like attacking the other channel with uh with lint rollers it's like so stupid when i say it out loud but it's 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 funny and it's just again it's sort of just like this inside joke for everybody that's involved and we all kind of chuckle about it you know can i point out like part of what it sounds like your stream is successful for isn't necessarily that you know you sat down with again with your whiteboard and we're all like well you know we want to craft you know something that's like very very like um you know (laughs) maximum engagement right no you were just like no what if i hung out and if people hang out and they're having a good time that builds the relationship and we're having a good time yeah absolutely and again i kind of fell into it I didn't realize what I was doing. I, I kind of, this is all in hindsight, right? Like the first couple of streams I did was actually just me in a loop pedal, like playing guitar. So I'd jam out this guitar part. Again, improvisation, it's just, it's it's what I love. So I would just improv and talk to the chat. And I was like, that was like literally the easiest thing I could possibly do. I was like, this is so easy. I could do this for hours. Like I actually, I like, I just enjoy doing it. So why not make the stream about it? But the, the one real, again, in hindsight, but the one real powerful thing about this is that literally for the first time, my audience is actually connecting with each other. Like it's not just about me and them. It's about them together. And that was like, that's a game changer. And, you know, I, I kind of didn't even mention it, but like all the Patreon people and all the Twitch people, like they all go into Discord. So I have like a basically like a paid Discord where anybody that's a subscriber gets into my Discord server and they all get to hang out and just do stuff. And now this is bigger than just me. So now they they play games together, they do stuff, you know, and there's all these channels for different interests. Some people are into design, some people are into coding, some people are into whatever, photography, cooking. Like it, it's, you know, so it's become bigger than just me. And and that's that's what I love about it. Like it's it's pretty powerful. Well, and to not reduce it to necessarily just the transactional, but now that you've kind of have your community interacting with each other, people are going to be less likely to just kind of like move on to the next thing now. Like your ecosystem has become <laughs> a lot more sticky. I, I I know it makes it just sound like a, you know, <laughs> I'm using like tech terminology, but like it's it's a thing. The funnel. Yeah, right. But like now people are hanging out in your discord. They're hanging out in their chat with each other on your Twitch stream and they're getting to know each other. And if they're already in your Patreon community and they're connecting with people that way, they're way more likely to keep paying for your Patreon and keep being a part of your discord and keep being a Twitch subscriber or whatever the one is that, you know, they, they give you a little money or whatever. I don't know enough about Twitch, but you've kind of created this whole financial profitability just from doing something that's very casual and authentic you didn't necessarily have to put on like a show show you're just doing the thing and people are hanging out 
Well, it turns out that like when you do enough work and you put it out in the world and people enjoy it, that there there is a certain amount of people that just want to support you, you know. And just to give it in context compared to touring, I, I actually make more income from, you know, 500, 600, 700 people on Twitch and Patreon than I do from 2.5 million people on Spotify. So just to give you context of like the financial difference there. So and that actually has a, a profound impact on my own personal motivation because I'm far more motivated to work for them. It's, it's not just purely financial. It's like, I mean, yeah, like if you're getting something out of it that's earning you a living, like, of course, you're going to be motivated to, to make it work and, and put a lot of effort into it. So like, and they really appreciate it. So like, why not lean into that, you know, versus the Spotify model, which is seeing his last legs, to be honest, but it, it's basically, you know, the this idea of like writing an album for three years and then like putting it out and it's like, well, I hope in three years I'll get paid for it. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's not feasible. And I could rant on Spotify for a while. I'll spare you. <laughs> I'm pretty critical about it because it's great for the user and the consumer, but it's, it's, in, it's incredibly broken for the artist. But I guess then, at least from my perspective, yes, Spotify from a artist perspective is broken in terms of, you know, giving you money right then and there. But how can you adapt to the times and use that as a part of your overall spoken hub sort of a thing? Spotify and your album is just another spoke on the overall, I'm mixing metaphors, I'm sure. <laughs> but like, how do you not just say, well, I guess there's no money left in music, <laughs> you know, and adapt to the times. And it sounds like you have figured out how to adapt with the times. Well, I, I think there, I basically, I'm, I'm not advocating not putting up on Spotify. I, I think there's certain, definitely a merit to it. But I, I think at, at every step of the stage, you should question whether that's the most important thing you should focus on. Because, yeah, like, because seriously, like 100 people on Patreon can support you more than Spotify can. So that to me is crazy. <laughs> so, so like, like, where are you going to put your time in, you know, working towards those 80 people or, or the, the millions on Spotify? So it's like, I don't know, there, there's, I think there's going to be a balance of multiple different platforms. And I, I think it's also okay totally okay that some people are just more passive about it that's totally fine i don't i definitely don't financially support all my favorite artists like or, or not not you know like people that i just listen to more casually you know so it, that's perfectly okay but i think what we're seeing now is this move to people call it the creator economy you know the patreons the only fans it's a bit of a taboo subject but it is the same thing it's a subscription model the twitch subscription like all these different models where the creator is at the top instead of being like, you, you subscribe to the service, you know? And I think that that is definitely becoming a lot more of the focus, especially moving forward. And the earlier that you can build that, the better. I wish I had built it earlier, to be honest. I mean, it didn't really exist, to be fair. But, you know, I, I wish I had put a lot of time into that. Because a lot of people think of Patreon as like a crowdfunding thing, and that's not what it is. It's actually like sort of a blank canvas. You can just, it, you, like, just like people subscribe to Netflix, people can subscribe to you and your content, whatever you want to do. It's really, you define it however you want. So like, that's, that's the whole idea. And it's not like crowdfunding for an album or anything like that. I mean, you can do that, but it doesn't have to be. So it, it's just like people that want to give you five bucks a month so that you can pay your rent or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> or buy a new piece of gear or... Uh, you know, people people like to support artists and it doesn't take a lot to make a meaningful difference, you know. 
So that general move, I, I think people are going to lean more towards that, and Spotify will become the afterthought for the more casual audience. I don't know. There's there's a lot of other kind of stuff that's happening that's really challenging the Spotify model that with crypto specifically, which is I, I kind of mentioned the NFT stuff like that. Um, that's a kind of a whole nother world that's blowing up at the moment. But th- there's there's actually like there's tremendous amount of opportunities now, more so than there was like even two years ago for artists to make a living as an artist, you know, and it's forcing these big platforms to compete with that because like even um, something that I want to play with is like, you know, kind of like the the movie theater model where it's like maybe for the first three months, it's only available on a certain site for like, I don't know, maybe it's 10 bucks, maybe it's 20 bucks. Your super fans want to probably don't mind paying 20 bucks to listen to the album three months early. Like, and then you put it on Spotify, you know, so it's sort of like gating basically the movie theater model before it goes to Netflix, you know, so that, that's another model you could play with. Again, this is assuming you have an audience like I I don't want to this doesn't really solve all the problems like when you're just starting. But I I just want to, you know, be aware that it's it's a pretty wide spectrum, but you have more options now than ever. And it's up to you to define that. And you have to like kind of figure that for yourself, you know, completely. Well, Andre, any just kind of last advice you would give to an artist that's kind of wanting to transition from music being a hobby to music being a career, if you could just boil it down to one last little piece of advice before we go yeah i think the okay like i say the be yourself thing like but that's such a almost like cliche advice people don't know what that means they're like oh you know like a lot of that is trial and error like i'm not gonna sit here and say that like i figured this out on day one a lot of it was stumbling through it and I, i think i've refined it over time what that means a big part of it is actually like having confidence in like believing in what you're doing. And I think part of that is, is sort of a lot of it is sort of like understanding yourself, right? There, there, there's a lot of layers to this, but like, you know, figuring out who you are as a person, what you care about, what you like, not just what's popular. Like forget about what's popular. That'll be over in like two months, you know, especially at the rate that things move. But like, so for example, like I grew up on 90s alt rock, like Third Eye Blind, stuff like that. Like, I mean, you might not listen to my music and like be like, yeah, that's, that's the same thing. Like, I, I don't think most people pick that up, but maybe some things. But I hear it everywhere in my music. Like, I, I hear it all over the place. The types of guitar things that I write, like, a lot of it is that, yeah, that kind of vibe. And and that's okay. Like, there's a, there was a long period of time where 90s alt rock was not cool. And I just don't care because that's what I like, you know? Like, I, I like that kind of stuff. So I, I think like leaning into like, who you are as a person, what you enjoy, what you appreciate. I guess like making music that you want to listen to. Like, I guess that's kind of what it comes down to. I feel like I'm not not even talking about the business side because like, I think it has to start there. And and that a lot of other things fall into place after that because people can recognize that. So if, if if you get that part right, it'll take longer. You know, I, I, f- I do think I got lucky, you know, in terms of that transition. My rent w- went when I first got in the music industry was 300 bucks. So, like, yeah. <laughs> different time. You know, I, I recognize that not everybody has that luxury. You know, small town living, I guess. But, y- you know, like, it, it might be a process. It might take you a couple of years. Even after success, I mean, there's a lot of people, even today, like, people that have, like, you know, 100,000 followers on Twitter still, you know, don't make enough to make a living. You know, like, the, the, it's, 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 not, it's not a given so I, I think I do think it all starts from that like kind of in, internal dialogue of like, 
do I like this? Is this, does this move me in any meaningful way? Is this like, it, it, it's not just like, oh, do other people like this or do people, or is anybody else going to appreciate this? It's more like, do I care about this? Because the, the other thing that I realized, like, especially first and second album, is like, I didn't really get much criticism at all, um, fortunately. But the, the way that I shielded myself from that was by, it's like, well, I like it. So I don't care what anybody else thinks. You know, like that kind of like mentality is bulletproof. Like nobody can touch you because you're like, well, you just don't get it. Or you just, you're just not who I, or you just don't know me or you don't understand my references or whatever. So like, I feel like I repeated a couple of things I mentioned earlier, but I, I really want to enforce that because I, I think that is the single point where a lot of people mess up. Like they try to be something else and then they get burnt out and then, you know, th then it just doesn't work, you know? So like you got to set it up right from the beginning. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, thank you so much for coming on the show and imparting all of this wonderful, wonderful wisdom. I'm just in awe of this conversation. So dude, appreciate it so much. No, th thank you for having me stoked. I'd love to come back. So many more rabbit holes to go down. <laughs> <laughs> we will see what we can do about that. Yeah, yeah. So that's it for my conversation today with RAC. Go check out what he's doing, not only his music, but also things like with his Twitch stream, how he's building a community. Hopefully that can get you inspired for what to maybe start working towards in your music career. Also, real quick, before we go, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, would you just go ahead and give us a quick five-star review? It helps the show get a lot more visibility on the charts and so more people can find the show as well. Also, if you're working on new music, would love for you to sign up for our free half-hour workshop. It's called Rock the Release. It's going to teach you everything you need to know about planning your next release so you can get on playlists, on blogs, and start racking up streams. Just go to evergreenrecords.com workshop to sign up for that. But for now, that's it, and we'll go ahead and see you next time. <laughs>